Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Buddhist Geeks episode. And today I am very delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Michael Taft. Thank hey, you, Michael. Hey, Vince. How's it going? Good. Good to be uh, chatting with you uh, yet again. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't always get butterflies in my stomach before a Buddhist Geeks podcast, but for whatever reason, <laughs> today I'm, I'm feeling the flutters. <laughs> nice. Well, we have attempted to do this podcast at least uh, several million times. So, Yeah, we've rescheduled a number of times. Um, blame the holidays and you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did um, not give you the flu. <laughs> That's a good point. Thank you for having a good memory there. Okay, we'll have to shift the blame somewhere else. I don't um, know where. But, yeah. So I want to just kind of say a little bit about your background and, and kind of uh, mention some of the cool projects that you're working on and things you've done so people can kind of check that out later. Um, before we jump into our conversation, which is going to be centered around this series, Meditating on Psychedelics. Great. I'll just put myself into a hypnotic trance while you do that. <laughs> okay, great. So um, the first thing I should mention is that you've had a website for a number of years called Deconstructing Yourself, and you and your partner, Jessica, yeah, partner in the sense of writing colleague, yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, your te teaching and writing colleague. Um, Jessica have been writing very interesting articles um, and posting things there for a number of years that are kind of in this, I'd say, similar vein of ex exploration of meditation and mindfulness and you know all the ways that that's interfacing and intersecting with uh, you know, contemporary life. Yeah, I started the blog in about 2011, I believe, and uh, just started to want to get some stuff out there, writing little posts. And um, uh, Jessica, it turns out, is a very talented author, and uh, so she started contributing. And the site um, has just been rolling along and eventually gave uh, rise to my book, The Mindful Geek, and her book on mindful sexuality called Good Sex, and and even the Deconstructing Yourself podcast with guests like Vincent Horn. <laughs> and the podcast that launched um, last year, yeah, 2017. Yeah. And I was really excited to see it launch um, in part because you were talking to uh, a lot of the people that I know well, like Kenneth Volk and Shinzen Young and Chula Dasa, some very interesting teachers that are kind of in this pragmatic Dharma scene, if you will. Um, and, and, and other interesting folks like um, who is the ph uh, philosopher that you just had on the show that uh, Thomas Metzinger Metzinger. Yeah. So, so some very interesting voices has quickly become one of my favorite um, podcasts. I, I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts, but that's one of the one of the few that I really tune in for. Mm, great, so, I'm really happy to hear it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you mentioned the mindful geek. Um, I've got a little mini confession for you that I've been saving. Uh, is it about the word geek? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's probably not surprising. Um, Shinzen Young reached out to me quite a while ago. Um, maybe a couple of years and he said, Hey, you should really talk to this guy, Michael Taft. He just wrote a book called the mindful geek. And I thought, Oh, that's cool. And then I, my second thought was mindful geek. It's like Buddhist geeks. Like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk to that guy. <laughs> I stole so, the word geek. 
Yeah. Right, right. So it was really interesting just to reflect back, after, especially after Buddhist Geeks, you know, went dormant for a year, you know, stopped that project, like kind of untangled myself from the whole <laughs> notion of being a Buddhist geek. And I was like, and then I met you, of course. I'm like, I really like this guy. <laughs> and it was just interesting, you know, reflecting back how petty um, and just kind of like silly uh, identities are. <laughs> you know, for the record, I, um, I tried out the title, The Mindful Nerd and The Mindful Geek. And I was like, Mindful Nerd just doesn't have a ring to it. <laughs> so no. We got to go the mind, Mindful Geek. Why not The Mindful Dweeb? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't have a ring either it, it really doesn't so basically um i was uh, stuck between those two titles but you know it is singular rather than plural so there is that <laughs> yeah no one has a trademark on geek what a silly, what a silly. um and you know t today we're, we're going to talk a little bit about psychedelics um and I wanted to see if I could start with a little bit of a story because um, there are very few people I've met who in their past at one point or another have experimented with psychedelics to the degree which you have. And You're just hanging out with the wrong people, Vince. <laughs> I'm starting to meet more of these folks um, as, as people uh, tune into this series. Um, but early in my career, uh, college uh, experience. I was at Naropa, uh, living in Boulder, uh, which I know you know well, um, yes. both places. And All right. So I prefer to refer to it, Naropa, since it's kind of a nude, hippie, uh, psychedelic sort of school. Abs yeah, absolutely. Um, you've got kind of like on one hand, uh, people that are very much exploring psychedelics and doing all kinds of, you know, hippie activities. On the other hand, there's a lot of really buttoned up um, Buddhists and meditators there who are like in the religious studies department, um, which is where I was. And it's a very interesting you know, mix of cultures. But uh, one of my close friends, um, while I was there, you know, we were in a number of classes together. We hung out, you know, constantly. We started to help actually start a business together later. Um, he was, um, I found out later, um, experimenting with LSD um, and he was actually experimenting, you know, at the level of doing it every day for, I think it was at least a year. Um, and I had no idea. Of course, during the time he was doing this, we were hanging out and he was probably, you know, he was probably tripping while we were hanging out most of the time. <laughs> and Un I knew he was, yeah. yeah, undoubtedly, because it has such a long, um, you know, active uh, life cycle. But one that thing that was interesting uh, is that I did notice that he was different. Um, I did notice that he was um, an interesting character. That's why I liked him. And uh, his nickname uh, for a little while uh, was Theta, as in like Theta brainwaves. <laughs> he, he went and got some biofeedback and uh, the biofeedback technician um, sort of told him like, this is really strange, but almost all of your waking uh, brain state seem to be like um, centered in the theta range, which is yeah. usually associated with like, <laughs> you're walking around in a dream state. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I called him that. And then later as uh, once he you know felt comfortable sharing with me, you know, that he was doing that experiment, 
um, it all kind of started to make sense, you know, why we were both kind of interested in, you know, consciousness and why he was um, so, so in some ways, so, such a strange character. Um, uh, I won't say that you are strange in the same way that he is, but you are one of the few people <laughs> that I've met again, who has this kind of experience. And, and it's so interesting because one, there. I've noticed there's a kind of narrative or story about people who use LSD uh, or have used a lot of LSD in the past that they're going to be just like totally unable to function, um, that they're going to, you know, brain will basically rot from the inside out and, you know, they're going to be more or less, you know, just like, you know, homeless and living on the street or something. Um, is that something you've run across? It's certainly the, uh, image that our society has of, you know, the acid casualty or, you know, the, your crazy uncle who has done way too much of that stuff and every once in a while ends up in the mental hospital or whatever. Yeah. It's a very common, uh, uh, image in our society that arose in the late sixties and early seventies and basically government propaganda probably. Yeah, and obviously there are probably some people who've had negative um, reactions to using LSD and it's had long-term effects on them. You bet. Um, and we can talk about that. And yeah, not to diminish the fact that there is such a thing as an acid casualty, you know, that does exist, but tends to look a lot different than that image. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Well, let's definitely get into that and talk about that. Um, I, I thought maybe first we could start with a little bit of your story. Um, you know, what was, what gave rise to this? We, we had a little prep call and you mentioned an author named Robert Anton Wilson. Um, yes, I know that was a big <laughs> raw. <laughs> Robert perfect. Anton Wilson is raw. It's like the Lama Suryatas yeah. <laughs> LSD. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> perfect. Um, so, so my understanding from our last conversation was his writing was really kind of a catalyst for you in terms of getting into it. I was curious if you could share a bit about that. Um, and also then what was it like, you know, as you did start to um, explore uh, this particular psychedelic substance? Yeah, so you have to cast your mind back to when dinosaurs roamed the earth and, um, you know, there were no cell phones and computers were things in giant buildings. Or we had just started to get uh, like an Apple IIe at college or whatever. It's a long time ago. And so, um, in a very different environment, uh, I began reading science fiction books and loved science fiction books quite a bit and still do. I'm a big science fiction fan, particularly hard science fiction, not so much into the fantasy. Um, but part of that scene was, um, reading a book by Robert Anton Wilson called Cosmic Trigger. And I had read the Illuminatus series, which is just, you know, three big novels of, of just wacky lunacy. It's not really science fiction. It's kind of, uh, uh, psychedelic fantasy actually, but the cosmic trigger book was something different. And cosmic trigger was, uh, or I should say is a book about Robert Anton Wilson's own experimentation with, uh, every kind of mind bending technology there is meditation and yoga and various psychedelics and various, um, types of group invocations and, and Gurdjieff and, 
as part of the book because Robert Anton Wilson is famous for talking about conspiracy theory. There's a lot of wild conspiracy theories and, and uh, very unlikely alien uh, invasion ideas and so on and so forth. And the great part about the book is just that it's sort of like, um, uh, uh, it's, it's sort of a explosion for your mind. It's just takes every certainty you've ever had and turns it on its head and then turns it inside out and then discards that for a new one and then does it again and again and again. And, and so it's a really fun book because he keeps delivering a new platform for you to stand on and then taking that out from under you. And so, um, Mm. it's, he's been called an ontological terrorist by people who don't like his writing for this very reason, because he keeps sort of questioning reality, uh, to the point where it makes no sense. And then providing the reader with a new reality to hang on to. And then eventually, uh, whipping that from your grasp also. So it's a really cool technique. And, and of course it's, um, in has interesting parallels to Buddhism and, and impermanence and no self and so on, uh, as well as meta rationality. And I just, that book just, uh, obviously blew my mind. I loved it. Um, it functioned for me in my life, uh, uh, as a cosmic trigger. It was in, in quotes, it was true to its title. Um, it really changed things for me. And, uh, when I read it now, I am, uh, more or less, uh, 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 it's sort of a meh. It's like, I can't see what I saw in the book at all. And I think a lot of it is the world has changed so much and I've changed so much. And Mm. a lot of what's in there just doesn't affect people. I think if, if someone were to read it today, it would be like 10 minutes on the internet is a, a million times wilder than anything in this book. Uh, that's so interesting. That point. Yeah. It's just different now, but back then it, for me, it functioned in that way. And it, you know, it's interesting. Um, I've ended up finding a lot of people who've had that experience with that book. Like it just turned something on for them that never got turned off. So, so yeah. And he of course was good friends with Timothy Leary. And, uh, if you remember Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert taught at Harvard where, a certain young man who ended up being named Lama Suridas was exposed to them and went to India and so on and so forth. So it's funny you brought him up in this context because I'm sure, uh, you know, the Richard Albert Timothy Leary connection was big for him and the, mm. the humorous initials he ended up with. Uh, but anyway, one of the big things that Robert Anton Wilson does in the book is talk about how great LSD is. And because he, you know, it's published by a publishing company. They made him put in the book a million disclaimers saying, you should never take this. Do not ever take LSD. It's a bad idea and so on and so forth. But of course, being, uh, I think 18 at the time, I just discarded those, uh, warnings entirely. And, uh, uh, did my best to find some LSD to take as quickly as possible. And you know, it's like more like an invitation than a warning to an 18 year old. Exactly. <laughs> it just made it all the more interesting. Right. So, um, so yeah, I went out and, um, 
Um, actually, I didn't even go out. I just was talking to people about it. And someone was like, well, here you go. And just gave me some. And so uh, that's how I got involved in that by uh, Robert Anton Wilson and his Cosmic Trigger. And um, I just still find that fascinating that um, even now reading something or a book can really have that effect, especially on uh, a young person. You just never know how powerful the influence is going to be of something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Were you also, at this point, had you begun your formal meditation journey? Or was that to, to come later? I was, certainly was meditating at this point. Um, I took up meditation as a teenager because I was having a lot of anxiety. And, um, you know, in the sort of 1970s Michigan, you could find books from like Llewellyn Press about, you know, magic and and or or um, spells and stuff. And, and all of them would contain some way of going into a relaxing meditation. Most of them were some kind of yoga nidra or full body relaxation visualization thing. And so I started doing that and, and it really, really helped to calm down the anxiety. And in fact, um, was so effective that that began my lifetime interest in meditation. So yeah, I had, I had already been meditating at this point. Gotcha. So in, in some ways, these, these two streams really emerged around the same time of your life. You as, bet. Uh, and especially back then, we're talking about the very early 80s. It was already pretty common that um, people who got into meditation got into meditation be either because they had had a psychedelic experience or um, it was fairly common to think of the two things going hand in hand that, you know, people who meditated often always, uh, often also took psychedelics and people who took psychedelics often were also meditators. Yeah. You know, the, going back to the sort of framing for this series um, and the different camps, you know, that, that Buddhists uh, I've noticed tend to fall into. And of course this is just a conceptual model Actually, you know, speaking of ontological terrorism, uh, the only reason I even came up with this silly model is because I had no language to try and talk about this. That was I couldn't find like a really good schema for this, so I just had to kind of come up with one. Um, and to me, that's kind of what's interesting about modeling is like <laughs> creating models is useful when they're useful. <laughs> um, and, but anyway. Um, you know, the two kind of main camps that we're exploring are the tolerant Buddhists whose response to, you know, whether or not psychedelics and meditation can go hand in hand is more or less maybe, but, and then the psychedelic Buddhists whose response is more yes. And, um, and, and just for the sake of completeness, um, I yeah. believe your model includes other possible. Yes. What are those again? Yeah. So, um, so those are the two that we're sort of actively exploring in the series, but then, um, there's also the sort of, uh, I've called them the anti psychedelic Puritans whose response is like, no, absolutely not. No way. 100%. And then the op the, the flip side of them, the psychedelic evangelists, you know, the people that are, you know, talking about, you know, dosing everyone with LSD in the water supply. And yes. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Handing it out um, on the streets. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, and then there's the agnostics, um, the people that are really, and I think these, this is a rare 
camp for people to be in for long, um, just due to the nature of this um, topic. Um, but you know, there are some people who who don't take a strong position that don't really know. Yeah, don't care, don't know. That's don't care, don't that's know. fair. Yeah. So I think you know something has happened in our culture since uh, the Reagan years, which is um, I remember when the the war on drugs fired up and was a real thing, and uh, you know we're still of course living in the the late the very late post post war on drugs where it's still kind of happening, but eroded to the point of uh, irony and irrele- irrelevancy mainly, except if uh, Mr. Sessions has his way. Um, but previous to that, these two things, I, at least in my, let's say my limited uh, personal experience seem to go together. The people mm-hmm. I talked to, the books I read, um, uh, the practitioners I knew, uh, almost all of them would have had done both meditated and tripped in some way. Um, and it was common for people who let's say were psychedelic explorers to also have tons of, uh, Buddhist books and maybe some Taoist books and actually have some practice. And they're probably doing some Tai Chi as well as meditating. So that was just a really common archetype. And it wasn't until Mm -hmm. the mid-80s that uh, you started getting this um, like freezing of any discussion of drugs with meditation. Uh, And and other things too, like uh, sex and meditation is just forbidden now. and there's a lot of things that, you know, it used to be, uh, if, if you read the Dharma bums, right. By, uh, uh, Jack, Jack Kerouac, he's, you know, talking about people who are, uh, obviously getting high and fucking and meditating and that's a lifestyle, Right. And it's, it's wild and crazy. And there's a million ways we can critique that. And, and a lot of them would be really valid critiques. But my point being, there was a, I I think the interest in both of, or all three of those things, like let's say sex, drugs, and meditation, we can toss in some rock and roll there if you want, but that's all coming out of maybe the, the beat era and the beats. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, uh, you know, the beats also helped to found Naropa Institute, right. a Buddhist school, uh, including meditation. So, you know, that stream had a certain vibe to it and it wasn't till the, uh, you know, a sex, drugs and rock and roll vibe plus meditation. And, uh, it wasn't until the mid eighties that you start seeing a real reaction to that in, in America, or let's say in the West. And by the nineties, you get things like um, you know, total denial that there's any relationship and, and really kind of extreme puritanical, what I would call extreme puritanical, uh, Buddhism in America becoming the norm. Yes. Yes. And that, and that's, that is more or less the environment that I encountered when I first uh, came into the scene. 
So I, I, rec- I recognize that fully and it, only in the history books and, and of course spending time at Naropa where it's impossible to avoid hearing uh, just a cacophony of stories about Trungpa and, you know, and drugs and drinking and sex and, you know, all of that. Um, you know, it was only then that I realized what a crazy uh, birth <laughs> Western Buddhism had in the 20th century. Yeah, and I mean, we, we can't, um, again, we can very, um, for very good reasons, we can critique that and see all the reasons that was not a good idea and all the ways that um, caused certain problems and difficulties. And yet, it's really important to remember that that is the roots. That is, that is where the journey began. Yes. And I think in some ways it, it, that imprint is permanently there in, in Western Buddhism. Yeah. And, and, and it seems like now we're coming around to a new phase where the conversations been opening up, you know, zigzag Zen was a really important, um, pu- uh, book that got published, uh, I think we're at 2000, 2001. And it's like gradually I've seen over the last several years, the conversation has sort of begun to open up and, um, you know, new kinds of conversations are happening. I wonder, as I hear you're descri- you know, describing the sixties and seventies, um, obviously not having been there. Um, I'm kind of curious if you see this as a kind of like, almost like a spiraling motion where we're kind of coming back around in a new place. Um, and integrating these two uh, previous phases in some way. Well, let's find out, right? We're not quite there yet, (laughs) but it it would be, it it seems like a dialectic that could happen between these two extremes. I mean, it got to the point, I remember in the late 90s, I was working at Sounds True, I got to record a lot of uh, Buddhist authors, and as part of working with them, I would spend a lot of time hanging out with them. And one of the authors was uh, Stephen Batchelor, who I'm sure you've met him. He's just about the nicest, sanest, deepest guy, right? He's a wonderful human being, and I, I love his art, and I love his writing. And, and he's British. And he's British. So you got that, yeah. too. Yeah, right? Like, you know, much more uh, cultured and thoughtful yes. and just yes. <laughs> reasonable than any American could ever be. And, and, you know, he was willing to go have a beer with me. And, and uh, because of course he's a, he's a secular Buddhist. And I have heard, uh, I have sat in rooms where uh, American Buddhist monks criticize the living shit uh, uh, out of Stephen Batchelor and what a, what a degenerate, uh, uh, satanic, you know, influence he is because no Buddhist would ever have a beer and it's just absolutely the opposite of Buddhism. And I just thought, wow, <laughs> you know, how far we have come. It's, it's just to be, yeah. and that was in the nineties. Um, so it's, it was amazing to me, uh, just how far the pendulum can swing. Yeah. So, I want to get into a little bit of the phenomenology uh, piece of this. And um, and I think that's one of the more interesting parts of this exploration is kind of hearing a bit about, you know, what these things are actually like. And um, I'll preface uh, this by saying that I do have some experience with LSD. Um, I've, I've done it, an, uh, you know, I'd say a handful of times. And so um, to, to me, it's, it's, it's a really interesting um, 
a really interesting substance, but I don't feel like I've had enough experience with it to really, you know, draw any strong conclusions or describe any really obvious patterns that arise in the experience. Uh, so I was really curious to hear a bit about, you know, over those the period of time that you were doing LSD, and I, I take it it was fairly regular for some period. Um, that what was it like? You know, how how was it doing that? What was the experience? How did it change and unfold? You know, this is a big question, but anything that comes to mind, uh, I think would be interesting to hear. Yeah, and I'm I'm just curious. Do you mean on a micro scale, like one? sort of a template of one journey or are you saying on a macro scale, like doing this for years, what was that like? Yeah, it's kind of both. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, um, so, so let's start with the micro, you know, what is, uh, an LSD experience like, um, you know, could you condense all your you know journeys down to one <laughs> description? Um, probably not, but you know, what, what is it, you know, what is it like for those, um, that are uninitiated and, uh, who may not ever, um, be initiated in this, um, experience? Yeah. So can I put the caveat first? Always. Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, it's really irresponsible to uh, tell anyone to do this particular substance, uh, especially if uh, they have not um, checked out their own um, uh, psychological well-being, their mental health at a very deep level, and have not um, checked out their family's mental health at a very deep level, like... Just to give an example, if there's any psychosis or depression in your, you know, extended family back a couple generations, it's probably a pretty bad idea to do this, um, especially without, you know, a, like a licensed therapist there with you. And I don't even know where you can get one to do that with you. So I just want to put that out there because uh, if you're like me when I was 18, you're just going to hear this and just go do it. And, and I'm like, you know, that's statistically, that's probably fine, but there's, uh, there's certainly enough evidence that, uh, uh, it's, it might not be fine for some people. So you want to do this with a lot of care and thoughtfulness if you were to even begin thinking about doing it. Um, what do you think Vince? Is that too, uh, not enough, too much. <laughs> no, I, I think that's I think that's really fair. And as you're saying that, um, I, I was kind of flashing back to not literally, but flashing back <laughs> to um, to experiences using you know using psychedelics where deep and difficult trauma and pain ha has arisen in my experience and and is. Uh, linked to family uh, trauma. So um, fortunately, I've, I've been able to navigate those waters um, with a lot of support and experience. But um, yeah, very intense. Yeah, sometimes you can't navigate those waters and hopefully you have the proper uh, help there or support available right then. Because it can, you know, for this stuff to be powerful, um, just to say it the way it's occurring to me, for this stuff to be powerful, it has to be powerful, right? It, it's going in there and really opening up uh, uh, deep and perhaps locked doors of the mind that were locked for a reason. And that uh, unlike in therapy or in other experiences or in, in most meditation, um, you know, the door might get flung open and in, a, in, in sort of a, a 
violent way and you might not be able to shut it anytime soon. So there's that aspect where, you know, you're definitely playing with fire uh, um, and the, and the fire might be applied to your own mind. So, you know, we want to be careful there. And the other thing is the other danger is, uh, you know, that's illegal, and you can go to jail for a really long time for possessing that substance. So it has a whole other kind of, I think, um, uh, um, avoidable, stupid danger that we've applied to it, but it's still a real danger, which is, you know, uh, even if you have a good experience, it can mess up your life in another way. So there's a, there's a big warning sign before anything I'm going to say here. Yeah. Well, and, and before you jump in, uh, just just to respond to what you just said there, um, you know, there's there's the warning about doing it um, and the and the dangers of doing it, and then I guess the reason we you know we're still talking about this is that there's also the dangers of not talking about it, and not um, not having uh, an open discussion about this, and I, I think probably that's been one of the most sad things about the last couple decades is the lack of information and lack of um, support um, that people who decided to try these things. You bet. Um, and part of why I'm even agreeing to talk to you about this is not, you know, uh, because geez, I want to just pontificate about how you know great it was to trip or whatever. Um, Although, you know, for me, it was a wonderful thing, a, a, a beautiful, life-changing thing. But uh, I think there's a danger that we will lose a lot of our own history and a lot of our own uh, cultural history. But even more importantly, a lot of uh, meditators have a lot of experience with this stuff and can really... Um, just from their own experience, talk about, or, or let's just say share their history, share their experience and share whatever modicums of wisdom they may have eked out of that. And I think that's actually useful. That's actually useful for people. So that's the spirit I want to talk about this in. I'm ready for the wisdom. <laughs> the, mo the modicum of <laughs> the modicum. Wisdom. Thank you. You've prefaced, you've prefaced it well. <laughs> we'll say a scintilla, as Shinzen is always saying, a scintilla of wisdom, maybe. <laughs> okay, so um, you asked me what it's like to take acid. So that's like in one way asking what it's like to um, hop on board a rocket, you know, um, depending on how much you take, uh, uh it may be more or less pronounced, but LSD is the most powerful psychedelic substance there is pound for pound, at least, you know, except for very exotic psychedelics. But, you know, um, you take some Benadryl, you're taking 25 milligrams, right? And it takes 25 milligrams to affect you. So we're talking 25 one thousandths of a gram, but LSD is powerful in millionths of a gram. So it's, it's measured in micrograms. And, um, gotcha. so, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a minuscule amount of a substance. Um, let's say, uh, an average dose of LSD is about a hundred micrograms. So almost unmeasurable, 
You just have to trust that it's in there somewhere, but it's really that little of an amount. And a horse dose would be like 250 micrograms. Um, and yet this tiny substance within a very short amount of time is going to start radically altering your perception of reality and of yourself. So, yeah, so, um, this tiny amount of this substance hits the bloodstream. And, um, I always liked the quote from George Harrison, where he talked about his first LSD experience, where he said, it's like opening a door in your mind you did not know was there. And I always felt like as poetic as that is, it's a very succinct encapsulation of the experience. Um, uh, it reminds me of what it would be like for my cat who has lived indoors her entire life to, um, every time we open the door to the outside world, she's just floored by, by the fact that there's anything else at all. And I just imagine what it would be like for her to actually walk outside, you know, um, it's just, oh, there are entire realms of the mind that you have never ventured to. And, um, with LSD, you are now able to venture there. And, um, compared to other psychedelics, um, LSD is uniquely, or at least, um, relatively uniquely nonspecific about where you're going to go in, in these various spaces of the mind. So many, um, substances, whether they're psychedelic or not, uh, open certain doors in the mind, but tend to take you to certain places. For example, if someone is doing psilocybin, those are going to tend to be fun places. It's not always, but often very pleasant, often very humorous, often very um, sort of joyous kind of places. Again, not always, but it does tend to have like a mood to it. Um, and LSD is not like that. It does not have a mood. It will go anywhere you want to go. Um, so there is an aspect of, of a feedback loop where if you, uh, start to go in a difficult direction, acid will be very happy to take you in that difficult direction a, a long, long way. And if you're going in a positive direction, meaning, you know, pleasant and happy, it will take you a long way in the pleasant, happy direction. And, and there's, there doesn't seem to be any mood involved. And, um, <clears throat> so that's an interesting feature. And it's the thing that Leary and Elpert are always talking about set and setting matters even more than most for LSD. It does matter with psilocybin and other psychedelics, but you know, the kind of trip you're going to have can be in a way programmed by your environment, the people you're with, the environment you're in and what you think you're doing there. Um, and so it's really important. Uh, and I, I, I understood this because of the way Robert Anton Wilson framed it to take psychedelics with a, what we might call spiritual intention or dare I say sacred intention. Um, and, attempt to be in an environment that fosters that kind of, uh, alembic, that sort of spiritual or, um, at least let's say, um, deep introspective awareness in a, in a, in a contained kind of way that really, really helps. So, um, I, I realize I'm failing at describing what it's like because, um, um, 
it's going to take you wherever it's going to take you. But a couple features are um, prevalent. One is the feature that we might call impermanence. So right away, most people begin to see um, uh, things moving that wouldn't normally be seen as moving. Uh, you know, the wall is melting kind of stuff, or uh, <clears throat> you're acutely aware of the wind in the leaves or something like that. This is a strong focus on, on uh, impermanence and waves of impermanence particularly. And is, and is that a multi-sensory or is it uh, particularly in a uh, specific sense like visual, for instance? I think it is multi-sensory. My experience is certainly multi-sensory. Most people notice it visually because we tend to um, not critique our own construction of the external visual reality very much. Um, but one of the first things that the, uh, the acid will show you is that it is, um, you know, the visual sense is constructed and it's, um, and you're noticing that because it's, everything's melting and probably unless you're extremely high, you get it that external things aren't really melting in the way that you're seeing it. You just are seeing an artifact of how your sense perception is, um, uh, constructed and that construction is being, uh, affected by the substance. Um, that is however, really fun and fascinating and immediately, um, starts to make you question things that you had not questioned previously. Um, and I do think it, it, it is showing you the reality of impermanence and showing it to you in a way that, that we don't tend to get in the normal, impermanence lecture about, well, everybody dies and, you know, you're going to get sick and stuff like that. It's, it's that direct deep down in the sensory experience kind of impermanence, which, you know, you work with uh, Kenneth and Daniel and, and those great guys. Um, and so, you know, it's, that's where we, that's where we find the uh, revolutionary impermanence, the one that actually helps you to um, awaken. Right. So I think LSD points that out right away, uh, very quickly. Yeah, that make that makes that makes total sense. And I think the distinction that's a little esoteric in some ways to talk about, you know, is it multi-sensory or is it this? But um that actually is really helpful um to hear from me because uh one of the features of the journeys that I um did is that the visual field in particular was um presented itself in a very impermanent and, and different way than even I'd experienced in meditation, probably because a lot of my meditative experience wasn't focused on external visual sensations. Um, but still, uh, even, even so, you know, in deep, long retreats, uh, I'd never had those kind of visual perceptual experience of seeing, you know, things change on such a moment by moment, color, shape, texture way. So that that's actually help, helpful to, you know, kind of point out that it's, you know, maybe highlighting things that, you know, impermanence in ways that hadn't been, you know, not noticed before. That's right. And I think it's actually pointing it out in, in a way that's much more related to the way you want to notice impermanence in meditation, which again, isn't so much as a concept about how, how, you know, 
everyone you love is going to die or, or, you know, you think you're young and healthy, but you're going to be old and sick someday, which is useful, but in a way totally obvious. And, and I think, um, not hard to grasp. Um, but instead it points it out in this very, very phenomenological way as arising in the sense gates themselves. And that is exactly how we want to notice impermanence in meditation. Yeah. So you get that rocket ship, uh, the, the booster in terms of um, the impermanence uh, booster. You bet. And um, it certainly matches my experience of doing, you know, a hardcore Vipassana of getting right down inside a sensation and noticing its moment by moment fluctuation at a very high rate. The kind of stuff Daniel Ingram would talk about um, is, is, um, reminds me entirely of, of um, some aspects of the LSD experience. So I think those two things are closely related. Um, another thing that comes up uh, right away, um, not just in LSD and most psychedelics, but it's a major feature, and that is uh, suchness. Um, you hear guys like Aldous Huxley talking about it in the doors of perception where he sat and looked, I think he's looking at like the seam of his jeans or some, some very mundane object like his pants. And he's, um, describing how they're saturated with thusness or beingness or suchness. And, um, that is a very particular flavor of psychedelics and particularly acid, um, it, you know, you can suddenly, it, it's as my, um, one of my tripping friends would, would, would categorize it. It's a, wow, my foot kind of experience where he was just looking at his toes or whatever. And this sounds hilariously, uh, navel gazing kind of thing, but, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, cliche about, uh, people who trip, but you know, you look at a simple object and you are completely, captivated by it and captivated by its suchness. And you can help me to talk about what suchness even is. Uh, but it's a, it's a prominent experience of objects in, uh, in the psychedelic experience and in the meditative experience, particularly right. the jhanas. Mm. Oh, interesting. Well, um, can you say more about that? How, how do you see those, uh, being connected, the jhanas and suchness? Well, let's take it out of uh, the, the, the particular Buddhist jhanas for a minute and just talk about high concentration mm -hmm. on an, on a, uh, let's say you're doing a meditation on a casino type thing and, uh, of just a, um, of any particular object. So a rock, you're going to stare at a rock and meditate on that uh, blinking of course, and, and allowing your eyes to water and all that, but you're meditating on a rock and, if you do that for a while, you, you with very high concentration, you may notice a lot of the constructedness of that experience and the the vibration and the um, impermanence in the visual field uh, um, presenting that rock to consciousness. But you may notice another feature, which is the rock sort of um, almost like glowing and shining in awareness with a kind of preternatural meaning and you can't really put your finger on what the meaning is and if you try to in normal human language it's it just ends up being you know nothing uh 
it, it's not that kind of meaning. It's it's more like a koan sort of meaning where there's a something very um, uh, beautiful and uh, enlivening about the essence of that object seems to have been revealed to you. And um, I think where people go astray with this is then creating vast theories about what that means and how it connects to every other thing in the universe or whatever in a, in a, in sort of a um, paranoid way that leads to conspiracy theories. If it's, if it's a negative kind of connection or in, in kind of an overly important um, cosmic meaning kind of way, if it's a pleasant meaning, Hmm. but we don't have to go there and instead just stick with that suchness, which is the English translation of the Buddhist term, right? Just the, the beingness of the object has this tremendous, um, seeming weight and, uh, uh, meaning that can arise in a, uh, in a jhanic state. Yeah. I don't know that this is, um, exactly overlaps with what you're trying to describe, but, um, the, the term that arose in, in, in uh, in my mind while you're describing that is, uh, also luminous, luminosity. There's a you bet. luminous, um, being quality, alive, almost like an aliveness to experience. That is exactly it. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember being at IMS, right? I did like a three month, um, not IMS, but the forest refuge. So I did a three month solitary retreat there and, you know, it was kind of a, kind of an everyday thing to sort of, uh, I was, I was meditating in my room rather than in the hall and I'd come out of my room and eat breakfast and go outside and, you know, something like just a leaf and you just very casually without any particular importance or or, uh, effort, just gaze at a leaf. And all of a sudden it just would have that luminous depth of presence and meaning. Right. And this sounds like Buddhism to me, right? That's how Buddhist authors write. That's what I think suchness is talking about, or at least that's an aspect of thusness or suchness. Mm. And it's also a very common experience on LSD. And I, Huxley um, uh, interpreted it as meaning that the filters that are normally applied to your sensory experience that allow you to kind of navigate through your job and driving your car and all that are uh, impeded or removed in the psychedelic experience. So you start to see this, um, this suchness that's always there. Hmm. And I think that is another thing that really attracted a lot of people who had had a psychedelic experience to Buddhism because they appear to be talking about a very similar thing. Again, I, a thing that I think is is um, closely related to how the brain processes sensory input. And, um, and so the two just seem to fit together really well. Okay. This is this is really helpful and um, interesting. I'm wondering if we could hone in or zoom in now on on the conceptual piece of this. Um, you mentioned the term meta rationality earlier, which is a phrase that I first heard from uh, a fellow named David Chapman, who's been a guest on 
both of our geek podcast, geeky podcasts. Um, it doesn't get de- geekier than David. And he he no. is amazing. I love that guy. Yeah, no, absolutely doesn't get geekier. Um, and and this is something he's been kind of, I guess, teaching on as a as a kind of central topic and and something you you all spoke about it, uh, at length in your podcast. Um, and it's something that I think is extremely interesting um, because it's it's a very I guess challenging question to say what what leads one to be able to take this um, I'll, I'll call it an advanced cognitive um, perspective on things um, advanced from the point of view of you know normal rationality um, you know being different. Uh, um, and, and in some ways less capable, um, than this sort of meta rationality. Could you talk, I, I'm going to, I'm going to leave push this under your hands to describe what meta rationality is. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a way of understanding things conceptually. That's, that's quite a bit more flexible and fluid and, and you know, able, as you described with Robert Anton Wilson to kind of move between, um, ontological, uh, frames or, his term was reality tunnels, right? Though, yeah, that's a Timothy Leary's term. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's similar, similar concept. I take it. Yes, it's uh, an identical concept, and it's identical to the concept of second tier thinking in spiral dynamics. Or, uh, oh, not, you're going to bring you're going to bring in the integral theory. Going to bring in the Wilbur and the integral theory because it's the same idea. <laughs> You know, yeah. And you're you're actually uh, uh, much more fluent in that particular idea. So correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the basic idea of meta rationality is that to work with cognitive frameworks and cognitive frameworks or reality tunnels uh, can be very helpful. In fact, we need them to do everything we do, um, and there can be small cognitive frameworks like how to use a computer um, or uh, the proper way to conduct a science experiment. That's a nice little uh, cognitive framework, the cognitive framework of conversations or uh, things like that. Those are sort of more uh, narrow in scope. And then there's really big ones, you know, is there God or how the universe works or what is my purpose in life. These are much larger cognitive frameworks. Um, And everyone navigates using cognitive frameworks all the time. And in fact, I would say that it's impossible to not have a cognitive framework uh, uh, unless you're, let's say, unconscious. Right. Like maybe temporarily you can, you can get so absorbed in a phenomena that cognition doesn't arise for a period of time, but then it kicks back online at some point. Yeah. To, to, to stand up and do anything useful, you're going to have a cognitive framework. Um, and that's great. We love cognitive frameworks. That's one of the reasons human beings have been, um, you know, thriving at least up until now on planet earth and, and why we, have airplanes and books and cities and lovely food and so on. Uh, we're good at cognitive frameworks. The, the thing is, we're not good at remembering that they're just models. They, these are maps, not territories. These are menus, not uh, food. And if you take them as real, they will still provide the benefit of having a cognitive map, but they become a kind of limiting factor also. Um, they actually 
become like a prison for your mind where you can't step outside that. And we um, tend to have a lot of arguments in our society or in every society between people who have different cognitive frameworks that they feel describe uh, not, uh, describe reality as truth. You know, the cognitive framework is the true description of reality. And the fight is which one is true. Yes. And uh, it's not just which framework is true, but which reality is true. Because they think their framework is reality. Um, correct. And so the idea is, if you remember that cognitive frameworks aren't reality, but just models, it solves the whole issue. Uh, you don't have to have a fight about which one is true because neither one is all the way true. They just have various levels of uh, accurate relationship to reality, and they probably cover different areas of reality. And you might get a lot of benefit out of using both at different times. You, it's very hard to use two at once, but you could switch back and forth between totally different cognitive frameworks and get a lot of utility out of that. Um, notice that if you think the cognitive, the cognitive framework is reality, the whole idea of switching between it is either weird or impossible or maybe like sacrilegious or something like it's taboo. Yeah. But if you get it, that cognitive frameworks are simply models, then switching between the models just makes sense and it's easy. Right. Uh, and yet, and yet it's just not that easy in practice. We tend to have a lot of emotional attachment to various frameworks it's, um, I think, part of the human brain's uh, drive to make things simple, that we want one framework to cover everything because it's just an easier hur heuristic. Um, it's less energy. We don't have to think as much. Yes. Um, and so even people who get what I just said and think it's obvious, even a lot of those people, even me, it's hard to, to refrain from falling into just always using one framework. And so meta-rationality is about uh, opening up to the idea that cognitive frameworks or reality tunnels can be changed and that it's good to change them. And in fact, an uh, incredibly skillful thing to do is to be able to switch in and out of cognitive frameworks often. It's great for getting stuff done. It's great for connecting to other people. Um, it's great for keeping your mind supple and open and not attached to a particular cognitive framework. And uh, it's remarkably rare out there in the field to find someone who's actually doing that. However, um, it seems to be one of the main results of doing a lot of LSD is that um, meta-rationality becomes quite a bit easier. And in fact, we, so far we've talked about LSD experience, including, uh, uh, the LSD experience, including impermanence and a kind of suchness. So this third thing, it would also be right there in the list as a really common experience is you see your own cognitive framework and recognize it as a cognitive framework. Up until that time, it's been completely transparent. You have lived inside it, not and, and looking through it, not realizing you were inside a cognitive framework. Uh, can, can I can I throw in one thing here too, which I think you know is particularly 
interesting right now in these times, which is that, you know, there's often described, for instance, um, um, there's a, a great uh, theorist at Harvard. Um, his name is Robert Keegan, who's written a, about this and his kind of model of human development kind of develops through several stages and ends in this, I guess you could call it like meta-rationality. Um, you know, he describes this great, this interesting um, transition between what I guess what we're calling rationality and meta-rationality where one has to kind of deconstruct the tendency to see things through coherent rational frameworks and have try to have everything fit the model or have the model evolve to fit the world. Um, and there's a transition where one sees, oh, that's not actually possible. Um, and the whole attempt, the whole drive behind my trying to do this, um, which I started to notice, um, you know, t toward the end of my 20s, was that um, it, it, it's sort of built in, it, there's a, there's a, there's an assumption built in that's just incorrect, that, that it's possible to resolve all these paradoxes or come up with the, 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 you know, the, the most perfect model. Or even desirable. Um, yeah. Or even desirable because it causes actually a lot of suffering, um, trying to fit everything in, into our concepts. And um, so the, the, you know, what's behind that drive to make all the, you know, the map fit or all the map fits to Fit, all the maps fit together is that you are still under the illusion that the maps are reality, that you yes. need this one cognitive framework that explains it all. And in fact, that's just not that useful. Uh, it's much more useful to have a, a big toolkit of a lot of cognitive frameworks and choose the best one for what's going on right now in your goals and be willing to let go of that instantly like taking off a hat or something you wear the hat when you need it and you take it off when you don't and you you know put on a different jacket for a different type of experience um so the cognitive frameworks you know no one's going around saying every hat and every coat you have must must perfectly match it just no they don't you know and not all your yes. not all your cognitive frameworks have to completely um fit into some gigantic cognitive framework. Um, yes. And of course, um, astute listeners are saying, well, that's its own gigantic cognitive right. framework. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's, that's actually where I was going to take that exactly. Well, I beat you to it. So you answer that one. <laughs> well, and I think it is. Um, you know, uh, Ken Wilber called this the performance contradiction. Um, uh, well, I don't think he made that term up. I think it's that's a philosophical a, a term. Yeah. yeah. A critique of postmodern thinking, which is, you know, also another way of talking about, about this. Um, and I, I, you know, the way I, the way I see it now is it's sort of, we, we use that recognition to pull ourselves out of frameworks and be able to become familiar with what it's like to be stuck in them and then to get kind of free of them. Um, and to then try other ones. But then in order to do that initially, you know, we kind of build this framework about how frameworks are, are limited um, or not the truth. And that can become its own obsession um, and its own truth um, for, for, you know, who knows how long can be, you know, lifetime. Um, and to be able to move through that sort of relativism of, model, you know, models and, and, and start to be able to kind of more take, take a stand somewhere. 
um, not just taking a stand that there is no stand to take, is its own, I think, maturation with the stuff. Would, would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, uh, the critique that the meta-rational stance is, is itself, you know, a rational stance. Um, sure, I get it. And at the same time, uh, as you said, it does help in the practical uh, practical activity of just noticing when you're stuck in a stance. And also it just reminds you to not take that one too seriously either and, and uh, to let go of it when necessary. So, and as you say, that can lead to much more maturity with this. Now, just to get back to the main part of the conversation, you know, we're talking about all this in a very sort of um, philosophical and rational manner. Yes. But uh, LSD will... That's our reality help. tunnel right now. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and yet LSD will sock you in the face with this. It's not some kind of thing that you have to sit there and, and you know, well, uh, the philosophical stance of meta-rationality. No, you'll just for the first time, maybe, notice your own reality tunnel that you're living in your own cognitive framework and see it for what it is. And that can be really shocking. Uh, it was for me. And I, I, I mentioned in the, in the, uh, advance podcast, uh, the, this recording I heard of Timothy Leary saying, you know, he's, he's recording this presumably for people who are about to take acid and he said, take LSD and look at your house and you'll see you're living in the home of an insane robot. And, you know, I found that tremendously humorous because when I heard it, because that was almost exactly my experience. Now, it wasn't that it was an insane robot or I was an insane robot, but just he's, that's his poetic and humorous way of describing seeing your own reality tunnel for the first time hmm. from the outside rather than yeah, from, from some the, other vantage. Yes. And it's like, oh my God, what is this person doing and why are they doing it? And, and it's just a fascinating moment. And I think no one ever recovers from that moment. It's very hard to ever um, yes. totally believe a reality tunnel after that because you've seen what they are. And right. So, Especially if it happens again and again and again. You bet. You bet. <laughs> and, and, and again, I think that this relates directly to Buddhism. And I think it relates to what meditation does to your uh, understanding of your own mind, especially um, – uh, let's say longer term meditation and meditation that's focused on, on not just body sensation, but on the mind. Right. I, I feel like um, I know some people who have very deep realization of certain aspects of impermanence and no self, but do not seem to have gotten the meta rational part. They're very focused on, on there being one true explanation of the world and, and it's literally true with a capital T or maybe a capital D in this case for Dharma. Um, mm -hmm. and that's the only one. Yes. Um, the, the right, the right view has been achieved. The right view has been achieved and, and I know it and it's the only view. And, um, uh, I would say that meditation practice that focuses on, um, the thinking process itself and on the arising of thoughts and how thoughts are uh, attached or to emotions and how those two things interact will, um, and, and I'm particularly thinking of uh, Shinzen here because he's so good at this particular point, like 
continuously deconstructing your own thought and feeling matrix over and over again. It's a very LSD kind of thing to do. And um, doing that kind of deconstruction of thought feeling uh, shows you the uh, reality tunnel or the context that you are, the, the conceptual matrix you're within over and over. And it just has that same exact quality of, of making that transparent reality tunnel opaque so, and, and allowing you to step outside it. So I think it's deeply related to a really important thing about Buddhist practice. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I, I'm glad you brought up the point that, you know, some people can have really deep understandings and realizations and embodiments of things. And yet still that piece is not um, active or, or is developed. And it almost seems like a cliche to me uh, meeting various people who have done serious practice um, you know, that some of them will be in one camp or the other. And I almost wonder if the difference is, you know, some people um, have have practiced under, you know, with a framework um, or with, you know, a couple different frameworks. And their goal has been to realize what those frameworks are pointing to, while others have at certain points um uh, the frameworks have failed them or they've somehow had an experience that makes them question the framework and then thus question their whole identity as a Buddhist meditator or a practitioner. And really everything, you know, great, Hakuin talked about great doubt, you know, it brings this really profound experience of like, I don't even know if I can, I can um, trust this whole Buddhist Dharma shtick. Like there's you know, something about this whole frame and the way I understand it and the way it's been handed down to me. Um, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit and maybe it's not right. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about David Chapman. He certainly writes at great length about this on his um, meaningness website. Um, uh, this exact point about particularly Buddhist sanghas in the West that tend to, and Buddhist practitioners in the West that tend to get caught in uh, believing that they found the one true truth. And, it's a, it's a really stuck place in your practice, honestly. I, uh, and something that I, I totally relate to. Um, one of the things that I think occurs, especially in a sangha where a kind of group think can arise is that people who have been meditating for day after day, after day, after day in a silent retreat in a deep way are tremendously suggestible. And I don't mean that this suggestibility is somehow exploited intentionally, but I, but it's definitely there. And so you've got your Dharma talk every day while you're wide open, wide open, wide open. It can start to be the, you know, seem like, yeah, that's the one, that's the truth. I, you know, yeah. and, and you just sort of, uh, you know, suggestibility has that feature that the information that is uh, coming to you from without is has bypassed the critical faculty like the critical faculty is not in place that's what makes it suggestibility and so there's been like this uncritical uh, uh, saturation of uh, Buddhist teaching into the mind uh, at a very deep level and you'll and you'll see that um, uh, there's like a very strong resistance to coming out of what is essentially a kind of um, hypnotic suggestion. Yes. Yes. And so um, 
again, there are, uh, you know, that's not a problem really. It's a, it's a known, it's a known thing. It's a known failure mode. And so you get a lot of Buddhist practices that like Zen is great about this, right? Like if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him kind of stuff. There's, there's yes. parts of the practice that recognize that feature and are, are there to correct it. And, um, I think it's just part of our culture, Western culture, especially American cultures, like puritanical Christian background, um, that, that we haven't as a, as a, as a culture of Buddhist practice, we haven't really got to that place yet. We still think there is one truth to believe and we want to believe it together as a group and be good little boys and girls and, and multi-gendered beings who are good little Buddhists. And, and, um, and I'm not like, I guess I sound like I'm ridiculing them or criti criticizing that viewpoint. I, and I'm not, cause that's an important step, an important mm. waypoint, you know, along the journey. And yet I think as a, um, as a practice culture and, a, and as a, and as a community of people who are trying to, um, let's say, get to the, um, the, the deeper riches of this tradition in an authentic and meaningful way. Um, I think we could, we could focus on this meta rationality piece a little more and get a lot out of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that hundred percent. It's one of the, again, this is one of, maybe that's the modicum. <laughs> this is one of those things that just, uh, uh, is so obvious from, from LSD experience that I think, uh, would be helpful in this context. Don't, you know, don't believe that your beliefs is what it boils down to. It's, 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 uh, this is a small point, but, um, you know, it's interesting to me that, that, that you're saying this is a kind of unique characteristic of LSD, LSD in particular. And that, that rings true for me because, a lot of the other psychedelics, especially the ones that arose out of and are still connected to various shamanic traditions, there's more of a tendency in those traditions and in ways of practicing with those substances where you are more imbibing the the view um, and the metaphysics and the ontology of the of the tradition, and whilst having this experience that it is by, by its very definition bypassing your critical um, mind. You bet. And, you know, there is some, some upaya there. There's some skillful means in having yes. a framework because, yes. you know, it gives you a way to orient in a thing that can be very disorienting. Um, yes. I mean, I get it. And yet it, it, there is more to be learned. And I think it's uh, something I mentioned right at the beginning is that LSD doesn't have a, as much of a mood to it as other psychedelics, especially plant-based psychedelics, they tend to have a mood and, and, uh, and then part of, and on top of the mood, like a direction they take you, there's also the cultural framework or shamanic framework or whatever that will tend to have a direction it takes you into. And usually those are well matched to the particular plant substance, uh, because they've been working with it a long time. Yes. And, and again, you know, acid just doesn't do that. There's uh, very little context and very little mood. And, um, and so it's up to you to create that context that is very safe and, 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 uh, gets you where you want to go. 
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.